My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Being intersex is at least as common as having red hair and more common than being transgender, according to recent statistics. Yet, a lot of people don't really even know what the term means. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. If you've been listening along, you may recall my interview with intersex author and activist Hida Valoria back in June. I've learned so much from Hida. Today, I'm so pleased to have another incredible intersex person and expert I'll introduce here shortly. We're going to explore their personal journey, delve into addiction and recovery, and also hear Dr. Megan Fleming's thoughts for a listener who finds sex less enticing without alcohol. Before we dive in, a quick reminder to sign up for Girl Boner Extras at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org, if that's easier to remember. I send updates about once a month, freebies, discounts that you will only find out about there, news about my forthcoming Girl Boner book, and more. I'd love to have you join my personal posse. You can also find me and Girl Boner communities online, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just search for my name, August McLaughlin, or Girl Boner, or head to facebook.com forward slash mygirlboner. So for those of you who haven't caught Hida's episode, or this is totally unfamiliar to you, an intersex person is born with genitals, hormones, reproductive organs, and or chromosomal patterns that don't fit those traditional medical definitions of male or female. And while it's somewhat controversial, depending on who you talk to and where you live, intersex is beginning to be recognized as a gender. It takes many different variations physically. It can be visible from the outside. Aspects can be completely not visible from the outside. And an intersex person could identify as gay, straight, queer, fluid, bi, just like anyone else, even as male or female or non-binary. Remember, gender is in the mind. Discrimination against intersex individuals carries on, and many doctors continue to recommend unnecessary surgeries to alter the genitalia of intersex babies, which can cause a whole lot of problems, and some of them are very long-lasting. All of this makes stories and voices like the ones you're going to hear today so vital. Seven is an internationally recognized counselor and addiction expert, and the world's first out intersex stand-up comedian and actor based in Hollywood. Seven is not only outspoken about being intersex, but has turned healing from their own trauma and addictions into fuel, you could say, for helping countless others. Thank you so much for joining me, Seven. Thank you. Thank you very much, August. That's quite the introduction. So I know your journey with realizing you were intersex didn't start until later in life, but you were, became aware of some differences. Was it around age eight? Yes. Um, I didn't actually find out I'm an intersex person until I was in my mid-20s. But I came uh, under the care, in inverted commas, of doctors when I was eight years old, uh, when they picked up that there was something going on with me. Um, my mother was seeing a gynecologist, and uh, I went to see her gynecologist. And uh, he ran some tests on me that I now know one of those tests was a chromosome test. And I was then sent to London to see the world expert on gynecology, a guy called Sir John Professor Dewhurst, very grand gentleman. Imagine God in a white coat. That was him. And um, he told my parents that my ovaries were going to become cancerous when I was a teenager. And so they had to be whipped out straight away, to use his terminology. And so when I was eight years old, I was put into hospital and given surgery. And that began what was a very traumatic journey uh, with the medical establishment. That must have been really terrifying learning about, I mean, the word cancer at any age, you know, and also for your parents. Being that young, did you did you grasp the magnitude of what that could have been? What I did grasp was that I knew at eight that I wouldn't be able to have children and I could see that this was a desperately upsetting situation for my mother, especially. She was very upset uh, by the fact that I couldn't have children. 
um, and also, of course, my whole family were upset that I had to have surgery. Um, I didn't really have any clue what was happening, obviously, though, because I was a child. I mean, children think that they kind of are in control of situations and, and know what's going on. Um, what I did have to do, though, was I had to really bottle my feelings up and kind of push my feelings aside because I felt that I needed to be brave for the for the grown-ups around me. Um, and I was constantly being told by Sir John Professor Dewhurst that you're a very special little girl, such a special little girl. So I felt like I kind of had to perform being special and brave and let all his medical students examine me and all that kind of stuff, which uh, in retrospect was enormously damaging and created a schism between me and my body, which uh, created all sorts of problems going forward. Were you being lied to so that they could research? Why um, I was lied to and why um, many, many intersex people were lied to and some still continue to be lied to was because there was one guy called John Money who was a psychologist. You've probably heard about this guy. Uh, He's had quite a big influence. Uh, And he had a case study where two baby boys, twins, um, had had, um, a circumcision and one of the circumcisions went wrong. And it was decided that it was better for this little baby boy to be turned into a girl and raised as a girl rather than be a boy without a penis. And John Money spent his professional life writing about this case study as a glorious success in uh, ne- in um, nurture over nature. He said that you know the parents were told to raise the child as a girl and this happened successfully. The child was pre-language, so they accepted their gender identity as female, et cetera, et cetera. And John Money went on kind of tours all over the world spreading this message that, that uh, nurture is more important than nature. And so how that trickled down to people like Sir John Professor Dewhurst was he genuinely believed if he didn't tell my parents that that my uh, sex wasn't actually straightforwardly female and so my gender might not be straightforwardly female, that the socialisation process would be more effective and that I would accept my gender identity of girl more kind of... Um, you know, that I wouldn't challenge it. But the reality is actually that from a very early age, I knew that I didn't fit neatly in the female box. From a very early age, I liked toys across the spectrum. I liked playing with boys and doing boy things more than girl things, actually. And I think it would have been a relief to me if I'd have been told the truth at that point, because it would have made sense of my actual experience. So when you were 12 years old, you learned more information including that you did not have a womb, which at 12, I don't think I really kind of probably would have understood the details of that. But, you know, so many of, you know, your peers were probably going through a lot of different kinds of things. Did you have like the period talk and all of that? And then finding out that your your body was going to react differently? Or was that something you expected because of the surgery? What happened was I was kind of told little pieces of information along the way. From from eight years old when I had the operation, I, I, I then had to see Sir John Professor Dewhurst for many years, every six months. And actually, that was medically unnecessary. There was nothing happening in my body that really needed to see doctors every six months. But he would parade me in front of his students. And so it was basically to use me as a kind of um, case study A kind of person. Um, when I saw a, a different gynecologist when I was about 14, actually, they told me that I didn't have a womb and so I wasn't going to have periods. And he did that in a completely matter of fact way, like, oh, yes, you don't have a womb, so you're not going to have periods like, you know, you're not going to be troubled by having periods as if it's a good thing. And and then he also said to me, oh, and of course, you're not going to have uh, much pubic hair or any pubic hair as well. Um, and these pieces of information delivered so matter-of-factly exploded on me in a kind of shame bomb and also created enormous problems because, of course, every girl in school wants to feel that she kind of fits in with her friends and the other girls, especially in the changing room at sports and that kind of stuff. And so I felt that that change and that difference very acutely. Uh, And I went from being captain of the netball team and captain of the hockey team to dropping out of sports at school and becoming one of the bad girls smoking behind the bye shed. And that was all because I couldn't face the shame of having a body that was different. And I also, of course, now I can see the benefits of not having periods and I've had enough girlfriends. I know just how painful and difficult and challenging periods can be. But back then, of course, if you're not having something that everybody else is having, you want it. Do you remember talking to anyone about it or did the shame keep you from talking to friends or did you talk to your parents about how you were feeling at all? 
Um, I didn't talk to anybody. I mean, I, I, I just felt too much shame. I mean, another thing, another piece of this jigsaw puzzle, and this is common to intersex people because I'd had my body kind of, because um, there were no kind of boundaries around my body and I had no sense of my body being my own. Um, I started being sexually abused quite soon after that operation by a teenager. Um, and so I can't, and, and, and that started a pattern of being sexually abused and exploited by older people through my teens, um, which created a kind of sense of distrust of other humans and a retreat from humanity into, you know, I, I, the, the only kind of creatures that I really trusted were dogs and cats and animals. And uh, I moved away from kind of trusting humans and, and wanting to talk about personal things with humans because it didn't feel safe. And that's trauma, which I'm still unpicking today. Uh, you know, I'm I'm considerably older than eight years old, uh, and uh, I'm still working on that trauma today. Um, and that's one of the reasons I do come out in situations like this. This is one of the reasons why I am an activist around um, trying to educate people to stop the surgery on children and infants, and to let people be intersex as uh, as a category, as a third space, because I think that. Um, Nobody really understands the impact of that trauma. Um, you know, most of it goes kind of unseen, undiagnosed, and many intersex people self-harm, develop addictions, have unhealthy relationships, live in shame and fear and, and self-hatred. Um, and, and we as a society don't know about that because it's not being talked about and it's not being uh, not being seen in, in the media in any way either. It's incredible to me how how little is known and how little it's talked about. You know, considering how common it is it four percent? Um the, the, the stats vary, but um I mean certainly you were right to say it's as common as red hair and green eyes. So everybody out there listening to this podcast will know an intersex person, but that intersex person won't have disclosed and is probably living in a a lot of fear and shame. And potentially may not even know that they're intersex as you when did you first hear the term intersex? I know you were in your mid-20s before you started to kind of really realize what had actually been going on. Yes. When I was, I think I was about 24 when a, when a, a new gynecologist finally put up his hands and said, look, I'm sorry about this, but uh, there's some things about your medical history you need to know. And he literally gave me this pile of uh, papers um, that were too heavy to carry out of the room pretty much, or he got he he got that that kind of generated. They, he said he gave me access to these papers. Um, and through reading those and then having a conversation with him, I found out what, what had actually happened. And I've now forgotten what your question is. Sorry, August. So that's when you heard the term intersex. I'm, oh, yes. I'm guessing. Was that explained to you? Kind of, had you heard of intersex before? No, I no. had no idea what intersex was. I don't know if they even used that term then. Um, thank goodness they didn't use the term that doctors currently use, which is DSD, which stands for Disorders of Sexual Development, which I think is the most a horrific way to name a human being, calling them a disorder. Um, I prefer intersex over that. But no, I, I, I was told that I had something called testicular feminization syndrome, which is the old name for my condition. My specific intersex condition is actually called androgen insensitivity syndrome, AIS, which means that basically all fetuses start out female in the womb. And if you have XY chromosomes, uh, when you're exposed to your mother's testosterone, because women produce testosterone too, all of this stuff we're taught in biology is just a gross simplification. When um, an XY uh, fetus is exposed to testosterone, the clitoris grows into a penis and the testes, sorry, the ovaries become testes and the body develops long male lines. My body in the womb was immune to testosterone or largely immune to testosterone. So my fetus stayed female and I look female outwardly. Uh, and, and, you know, I passed as female for many years and thought I was female, but just without a womb and without periods. And you had thought you had ovaries, but in fact, they were there were testes. testicles, yeah. yeah, and that that piece of information again was delivered to me by a doctor in the most matter-of-fact way possible. Uh, he actually used the word gonads, which I think is also such an ugly word. He said, "Oh yes, those ovaries were removed. They weren't ovaries. They were gonads." And oh, uh, yeah, and um, I can laugh about it now. And in fact, I've written a whole show <laughs> about that. Um, but at the time, um, with all the shame that I'd been through and all the embarrassment. I just wanted to kill myself, basically. I just felt so awful about it. I felt like a freak. I left that doctor and went outside to the girlfriend that I'd been with, with for seven years and 
she was the only person I told actually what what had just happened. And I thought that she'd, I, I said to her, you're gonna have, you should break up with me, I'm a freak. And that's how I felt about myself. I just felt like a freak of nature. Did you have those feelings because of the way that you had been born because, or because of the, the surgeries and all of the lies or was it kind of this big mix of all of it? I, you know what, I think it was partly because I I'd bought into, um, I bought into some feminist thinking that's now quite outdated feminist thinking around, although it's basically in, in, in my teenage years when I came out as gay and got my first girlfriend when I was 17, uh, I finally felt like I belonged to a gang and it was a very cool gang. And there were quite a few feminists at that time who were very anti-male and saw men as the enemy, you know, patriarchy as the enemy and women are this kind of purer, better species and it's men who are messing everything up and women are far more moral and everything, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, and I bought into a lot of that. Um, And so when I discovered that actually I've got XY chromosomes and my ovaries were in fact testes, oh my God, I'm part of the enemy or the enemy is within me, literally. And um, yeah, so that was horrible at the time. But you know what? It's actually a real gift to me now. And I have a real issue with the future as female. Whenever I see a, the future as female T-shirt, I, don't like I, I get on my I get on my soapbox because I think that actually, if you study human history, as I did at university, I did anthropology and communications. Um, a lot of early societies were matriarchal. They were goddess, women-focused societies. Women had the power. Women were seen as the creators. God was female. Uh, we've now come into patriarchy. And yes, patriarchy is a disaster for the planet and disaster for relationships. And, uh, and you know, we're in the middle of seeing just how patriarchy doesn't work uh, in, in quite a liberating way in many ways at this precise moment in our human history. I think that what my body says and what my experience says is that actually we are spirits having a material existence. And what's far more important than our genitals is our heart in terms of our spiritual heart. And if humanity stands any chance of surviving and if all of the animals and all of the beautiful plants in this planet we've been so gifted with stand any chance of surviving, we have to join together as common humanity across race, across gender, across sexuality, uh, across sexes. We have to put aside all of these strange things that we cling to and invest power in and move beyond all of that into seeing our connectedness as one spirit. Thank you so much for sharing that. I've had negative feelings about the futurist female too, and it's so wonderful to hear it in such a eloquent way and and very profound with with the historical context. And also, I just feel like whenever the the point is not of feminism, in my opinion, is not to make another gender or type of person superior you know it's it's all of us it's collaboration and that's what works is equality is actually us all working together do you believe that the, because obviously there's a gender spectrum do you believe also that because I know intersex there's different kind of variations and I, I read even about your own condition you, you spoke of there's different kind of I think grades they were yes, saying so is it possible that most of us are not like mostly female, mostly male? You know, I'm using the medical mm. terms. You know what? I think um, that my experience uh, has has th- I've I've had some very interesting things happen because of being intersex. One of those things that's happened is um, is my experience with hormones. Um, I'll just tell you this little story because I think it can help illuminate this point. I've been on estrogen replacement therapy since I was 12 years old um, because they removed my my testes. My testes would have produced testosterone, which my body would have broken down into estrogen and I would have functioned perfectly, normally and healthily without uh, any problems if they hadn't removed my testes. Um, But because they did that, they put me on artificial hormones from the age of 12 and um, there are all sorts of health risks attached to that, which I'm experiencing some some of the physical consequences of that at the moment. Um, we may have time to get into that. But when I started seeing a specialist at uh, University College London um, Hospital, a guy called, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking his name, hang on. Oh, my mind's gone completely blank. Anyway, he's an endocrinologist. His name, his name may come back to me. Um, 
he has a team at UCL which consists of an endocrinologist, a gynecologist and a psychologist. And he said to me that some people feel better if they have a combination of estrogen and testosterone. Um, and so he said, why don't we why don't we experiment? He said to me, you're not going to get any negative side effects. From because taking... you were only taking estrogen before? I was only taking estrogen, okay. yes. Um, so he gave me uh, testosterone to take as well. And I was only taking a small amount relatively. Um, and uh, um, it was a surprise to him and it was a surprise to me that I did start having some changes through taking this testosterone. My apparently kind of immune body did actually respond to the testosterone. Some of that was very good uh, in terms of it was much easier for me to put on muscle mass. I felt stronger. It gave me uh, it gave me a stronger sex drive, but it also gave me a more male sex drive. Uh, it Can I ask you about that? Just pause you for a second, mm. because... I I feel like the whole like male sex drive, female sex drive, I feel like so much of it is societal. Like we've been taught, you know, that women have to feel a certain, like there's so many other issues that affect, you know what I mean? Yes. So when I hear, like I always think of sex drive as not, it's so individual. Yes, it is. So I always think like, because I have a friend and I want to hear the rest of, of your experience mm. who is, was born with a, male body and is transgender and started taking estrogen and her sex drive like came alive, you know? <laughs> so I always wonder, like, when you say male sex drive, do you mean, what do you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. And I think that's a very good point because, and and of course, when I share this, this is just my perception of what was happening to me. And your experience. And, and my yeah. experience. And of course, if you feel like your body isn't the body that you've been born into and you're taking, and then you start taking the hormone that feels like the appropriate hormone, that's going to be enormously powerful and symbolic to you. And you're going to feel much better about yourself and more in touch with, in that case, your femininity, for example. And so feeling comfortable with yourself and feeling positive feelings about yourself is what gets the kind of sexual juices flowing really but um what i mean by that is that um i would say that i experienced my sexuality as i think many women do in that it felt very much kind of like something which i could tune into um or not you know i didn't feel like i had to have sex you know i I had a sex drive and i wanted to have sex especially if i was with somebody i desired but it wasn't it wasn't kind of something that i had to have it wasn't i didn't have that kind and i'd had quite a few um, male partners as a teenager and uh, um prior to coming out as a lesbian at 17 and male sexuality did seem to be kind of more assertive than than my sexuality and and that of my female friends when i started taking testosterone i found that it just became it, it became sex became more like kind of food or water as a drive something that needed to happen and if it wasn't happening was more frustrating i would say and you've probably felt more you you said aggressive maybe assertive more so that it would make sense to me that that would get into all areas of your life. Yes. Like sexually, you'd probably be more proactive. Yes. Whereas I think as, you know, cis women we, or even people, I, I guess, identify as female tend to, you know, push it down, like yes. disconnect from it, where there's almost like this more, I don't know, permission. Yes. And of course, socialization and expectations, societal expectations of our sexuality play an enormous part. And, you know, women, women, as we know, are, are very sexual beings. And of course, women have powerful sex drives. That's not I'm not in any way seeking to, to suggest that women, women aren't like that or can't be like that. But I, 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 I feel like I had more choice over I could be more discerning prior to the testosterone. Uh, and, um, you know, and I was on what turned out to be too high a dose of testosterone for, for me personally. I found that my sexuality started moving in a direction that I personally didn't feel comfortable with. But also what was very interesting, especially given the nature of your, the name of your show, which I love, is that I the only discernible difference in my body when I was born was that my clitoris was on the large side when I was a baby. Now, as I say in my stand-up, you know, when a baby boy is born with a large penis, everybody's really happy about that. The guys all pat each other on the back and smoke the cigars. He takes after his father. This is fantastic. Nobody is so happy about a baby girl having a big clitoris, are they? That's a that's a problem. That's a kind of mm, a sign that she has a potential sexuality and so it takes us God into... God forbid. Kind of, God forbid that she might be all a All that pleasure. Being. Get it, get it away. Yeah. 
But this is serious, though, because if a girl's clitoris is deemed to be too big, and mine was just about on the acceptable scale, um, but if it's deemed to be too big, then the doctors want to either hide the clitoris if they can hide it uh, with surgery, or they actually cut the clitoris off. And I've actually got female intersex uh, fans, no, friends who, who have had that incredible... Uh, terrible act happened to them because a doctor has decided it's it's better for the girl to look cosmetically more female because she'll stand more chance of getting a husband and it really is that kind of thinking if she has a, a clitoris that's too much like a micro penis then no man will want her because of course she's going to be uh, heterosexual being that this is heterosock as my friend Derek Jarman termed it um, but yes uh, that's so interesting uh, because also, Hida, when mm-hmm. when I interviewed her, she has a large clitoris. And I asked her because the first time I met her, it was at an event and she ran up to me and she's like, girl boner, I get those, you know, <laughs> yes. because, you know, so so do all women. Yes. But in what the t- kind of terms that we conventionally think of a boner, we think of an erection we can very obviously see from the outside that might show through the clothing or whatever. So a larger clitoris, you'd be able to see it more, you know, and which is, and in her case, no surgery took place and it's been wonderful for her, you know, so it's, so it's interesting how, and, and, and devastating that that is robbed. And I've heard the surgeries called non-consensual surgeries as well. Yes, it really is. Which it is. I mean, what what teenage um, person is going to elect to have a bit of their body removed, which means that they're probably not going to be able to orgasm or that, or that they're not going to have very much sexual feeling. I mean, this is one thing which I said in my coming out article, which is called The Secret of My Sex, which was written in 2006, is that we hear, we hear so much about the heathen in speech marks African tribes performing clitoridectomies are on baby girls and sewing up baby girls so that, that you know the man has the kind of um, powerful experience of penetrating and proving virginity but we don't apply that same thinking and same uh, kind of um, shock and horror to the western surgery that's happening routinely to intersex babies and children and it's still happening it's happening in the united states routinely and it's happening all over the world that baby uh, babies are being operated on to make them look quote more normal and that's that's got to stop it does and i think your advocacy and openness is so important for that reason because i imagine parents having a baby and they're basically given that suggestion, you know, we can, quote, correct this and not actually knowing that there's nothing wrong. Sure. I mean, I always try and understand both sides. And I'm I'm a big I'm a a big kind of believer in kind of bringing people together to move forward rather than just being angry and condemning. Um, And I, I understand that there were good motives that started this kind of move in the direction of surgery because yes it's true to say that if children look different then they do get singled out sometimes and sometimes bullied but you know what actually small children and any parent knows this small children are actually incredibly accepting because they're open to everything they don't know how the world is and if we actually reflected that diversity the bodily diversity especially more in films and television and discussion and if everybody knew that some babies and children are born intersex Uh, It would be great for all intersex children. It would be great for trans children as well. And it would help move us beyond this gender binary, which actually isn't true. I mean, you started kind of alluding to this. And I I really do believe that many, many people are on the spectrum in some way or another. You know, I think that there's the element of the brain. There's the element of the hormone levels. There's, uh, you know, your chromosomes. Uh, I think that gender and sex are really, really complex and that we each have our own unique manifestation of what that is and where we fit on what is a spectrum, a rainbow spectrum. And that's what's so beautiful about uh, biodiversity and about nature is that there is this enormous spectrum. um, And we should be celebrating that. We shouldn't be trying to create this black and white world where everybody's the same because that's so boring. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I imagine the terms and the procedures involving these surgeries came about before anyone recognized that women, girls, 
wanted sexual pleasure Absolutely. or or it was just so frowned upon or it was more of like something to only procreate or or whatever and they you know they they weren't realizing the repercussions not because they didn't like girls or women it's all they knew you know i could i could see that it might take more time to you know to get to that place mm-hmm. where, where people understand it. I, th- I think a few different things. I've spoken to a lot of doctors and I've I've kind of lectured doctors um, in, in, in um, on courses and all of that kind of stuff. And I, I think there are there were some good motives, as I was saying there, in terms of trying to help children not face you know, abuse and bullying. Um, but the reality is that the cure is far worse than 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 the than the original uh, situation in the sense that any surgery on a child's genitals is like rape trauma. You can't do surgery on anybody's genitals without out, out it creating trauma that's akin to rape trauma. Um, and so that's going to be a lifelong problem. Um, these surgeries are incredibly complex. It's much easier to create female bodies than male bodies. So most intersex children emerge from the operating theater as female, not male. Um, and it's also just playing into this idea that there's only two sexes, which is a denial of reality. Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent points. I'd love to talk more about the addictions that you developed in response to and in light of the trauma and all these realizations. Could you share what was the kind of turning point where you went from you know, realizing all of this to finding those kinds of coping me- mechanisms or attempting to cope through substances? Hmm. Well, again, my, my experience as an addict and my experience of developing uh, substance abuses um, and whether, um, it's, it, it's, it's a complex situation. You know, as an, as an addiction expert, I know that many things cause addictions in, in humans. Um, but it's a combination of things usually. Often it's a genetic predisposition. I'm a Graham, my my male side of my family is Scottish and there's a lot of addiction in that side of the family. Both of my, uh, my both my maternal and my paternal great grandparents um, had alcoholics in you know in in the family. So it was partly that. It was also um, partly the trauma which started so young, which I think ter- sort of turned on the addiction gene. Um, what, what I can tell you is that for me, when I started drinking alcohol at 12 years old, um, a big part of why that was such a powerful experience for me was because it took away the shame and the sense of being different and kind of the self-obsession and uh, the kind of sense that I didn't fit in and I wasn't normal and all of that. It just vanished with alcohol. And so alcohol was like a magical liquid. Um, and then um, my mother uh, left the family when I was 14 and um, I went out and I found cannabis and speed. I absolutely loved speed because it gave me a voice. I didn't really feel like I had a voice up to that point and speed gave me a voice. And like many addicts I've worked with, I would say to you that drugs and alcohol were the solution for a long time. They weren't the problem. They were the solution to the pain that I was in. You know, I had two suicide attempts when I was 14 years old. Um, and I, I really do believe I probably wouldn't be here still if it hadn't been for alcohol and drugs um, in terms of medicating the pain that I was in and helping me to experience positive things. In terms of the subject of your podcast, I don't think I'd have probably had sex if it wasn't for alcohol and drugs as well, because alcohol and drugs gave me the kind of um, the courage and the kind of um, belief that I could be desirable that helped me to have sex not in healthy relationships, certainly. And when I look back on my teenage years and some of the stuff that happened to me, yeah, I lost my virginity to a paedophile, for example. Um, you know, it was it was pretty horrific. But I'm very lucky in that when I did reach rock bottom um, with my drugs and alcohol, which was when I was 32, I was a television director and I was privileged and I was able to pick up the phone to a rehab and go and do treatment. Um, And one of the reasons why I ended up retraining um, and leaving the media behind and becoming an addiction therapist was because I knew that I wanted to share the skills and the knowledge and the wisdom that had been shared with me because I was privileged with a whole cross section of society. Um, I set up my company in 2009 in the UK and uh, literally got to work with every sector of 
humanity. I work with billionaires and A-list famous people and, and you know, people who could afford my fee, which was very high. Um, and then I allowed uh, my, I, I kept time in my diary every week to work with homeless and prostitutes. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've worked with a lot of queer LGBTQI uh, kids um, who are, are much more likely to have addictions than the straight population for obvious reasons. Um, and it, it was a fantastic, fantastic career, which I loved. You brought up such an excellent point. And I'd never heard alcohol and drug abuse in that sort of way of it actually being something that helped you along in some ways, you know, until it didn't. Yes, but it that works and then it doesn't. Right, exactly, exactly. We have a question from a listener who is experiencing something related to what you just mentioned. It comes from Sam, who wrote this. I recently found out that my partner is an alcoholic. He hid it well, but I suspected, and luckily he's now getting the help he needs. I gave up alcohol to be supportive, and I'm surprised by how much I miss it. In particular, it changes my sex drive. I'm less in the mood and more inhibited without it, even though I wasn't drinking that much, two or three glasses tops before sex. Do you know if this is common or have any tips on what I can do to make sex better again? I still get erections, but sex feels less intense and I feel self-conscious. Sam, thank you so much for your question. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of Great Life, Great Sex had to say. It's not uncommon where one partner might not be drinking, whether or not they've been an alcoholic or not. And uh, I think respectfully, it's a great way and show of support to give up alcohol. But it's also to, as you are noticing, appreciate that, wow, you know, it's, you know, you're not feeling as sort of desirous and, and you're not even feeling sort of the intensity and orgasms. And so I'm wondering even, you know, is that something your partner has noticed? Um, and does he have any distress over the fact that maybe you're initiating less or more likely to say you're not in the mood? Um, because, you know, it's always sort of that cost-benefit analysis on, on one hand, um, if both of you miss, uh, you're being more um, playful and disinhibited and um, sexy, then it's a question that I don't know how long your partner's been in recovery and sober and what his supports are like. And, you know, honestly, to have that frank conversation, would he feel triggered in any way um, by smelling the alcohol in your breath? Because it, it might be true, in which case, absolutely, it's, it's a non-negotiable, it's not on the table. Um, but he might actually have no difficulty with it. So I think that it's really having that honest conversation. That being said, it's to appreciate, you know, what is the effects of alcohol? Um, and it really, it is a central nervous system depressant. So it is that quality of numbing, which I think is taking you out of your head, right? And it's what's helping you to let go and be more present. And so there's another part of me that wants to say, instead of noticing what's you're lacking from that numbness because again, it's really, it was, it was medicating anxiety, you know, performance anxiety, um, what we call spectatoring, you sort of observing yourself. And so now that you're not drinking, I imagine I'd have, you think about what are your thoughts during sex or thinking about sex, like a cartoon bubble above your head and notice what's in that dialogue box because I'm willing to bet more often than not, you're sort of turning yourself off. Um, and certainly not turning yourself on. And so I want to empower you to think about what are all the ways you can turn yourself on. And that could be, you know, looking at your partner's chest, or it could be a cologne that he or you wear, or it might be uh, reading some erotica. You know, what keeps sort of your sexy pilot light on is like I refer, refer to it. And then it's also sort of explore natural things, right? Like hitting the gym, because we know that, you know, exercise can increase testosterone as well as, you know, the more fit and you feel in your body, the more self-confident um, you're going to be. And so that in and of itself may help you to be less inhibited because you're just feeling really great and, and wanting to be fully present. Um, but also thinking about all sort of the natural aphrodisiacs in terms of foods that um, can also sort of increase blood flow, everything from figs, bananas, avocados, certainly not to forget chocolate, which it, it basically works by increasing phentolethiamine um, and serotonin. And so obviously chocolate is always a great go-to. And then let's not forget that there's also some of the herbs that you could try, like ginkgo biloba, euhimbine, uh, or Siberia ginseng, just to name a few. And I guess last but not least, you know, the role of breathing. It's to recognize that if there's a component of 
anxiety, which is constricted energy of blood flow, the opposite of arousal, right? Then just doing some breathing and maybe having a practice of meditation and anything that relieves, relieves stress in your body is also going to be sort of sex promoting. So, you know, my, my answer to your question is really sort of two parts. One is use this as an opportunity to think about all the ways you can turn yourself on. Um, and then the other part of the question is, and when and if that feels like it's not as helpful as you'd like it to be, to really have that honest conversation. And again, maybe it's not all the time, but it might be on special occasions you have a glass of champagne or two glasses of wine. Um, just really figuring out whether or not that in any way would be a trigger for your partner. So love to hear how that conversation goes and you know how, how, how you do in terms of turning yourself on. Because again, the biggest sex organ is our brain. So you know, use it to its fullest. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I loved what she said about being present. And I agree. It's really cool when a partner wants to, you know, work with their partner. And it sounds like they're really in this together. And uh, I just want to add, make sure you supplement with caution. I feel like there's a lot of creepy supplements out there. There's like a lot of good ones, too. But just make sure you know what you're taking. <laughs> what Did you have any thoughts as you were listening to that yes i mean some, some very some very um some very good comments there from from your um, therapist um i think um she's absolutely right that uh um you as as a partner to somebody who has an addiction you don't necessarily have to stop drinking yourself that can be quite codependent to think you've got to kind of completely change your life to accommodate your partner um you know if you don't have a problem with alcohol yourself then um, you absolutely have a right to carry on enjoying that if if that's something that's safe for you and safe for your partner. So that needs to be a conversation. Um, you know, I, my my I've been sober sixteen years, just celebrated sixteen years, and my girlfriend loves a glass of champagne. It was her birthday a few days ago, and she she loves a glass of champagne or two. Um, she'll quite often leave half a glass of wine, which to an alcoholic is a very strange thing. Seeing somebody drink half a glass and then leave half a glass, uh, and I I you know, and I'm completely comfortable with that now. However, I also recognise that in early recovery, being around any alcohol can be very triggering. So that's very nice of, of that of that person to consider stopping drinking but that might not be necessary in the longer term and it certainly should be something that you have a, as a conversation with your partner um and i would also say that people in early recovery um you know sober sex is one of the big challenges it's recommended to somebody coming into recovery if they're not in a relationship to avoid a relationship for the first year of recovery i would say even possibly two years to give you the time to really heal everything you've been through and to develop that self-love and relationship with self um but if you are in a relationship obviously that's a, a different thing and the most important thing is open and honest conversation and doing things that can take the stress out of the situation you know things like massage and 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 you know kundalini yoga can be really good as well for getting those natural juices flowing again and reconnecting with each other yeah yeah so at what point in your own experience did you realize that you had a problem and that you, it was time to address it. Was was it sort of, it was getting worse and worse? Or did you realize for some time that this is a problem? I just don't know how to get out. I My denial around my addiction was um, I had this view of an addict or an alcoholic as somebody who can't work and who has to drink and use every day. And for many years, my pattern of addiction was binge use. So I would be very, very healthy for most of the week, you know, cycling to work and uh, eating super healthily and going, hitting the gym a lot and all of that. And then at the weekend or when I was in a situation where I was going to start having a drink, all bets were off what would happen, you know, and I would say to myself, I, I, I knew that I had a problem with cocaine before I knew that I had a problem with anything else because right from the word go with cocaine, if I had one line of cocaine, then I wanted another and another and another and, you know, uh, I couldn't. I could see quite clearly that I couldn't control my cocaine use. For me, it was very difficult to recognise that alcohol was a problem because alcohol actually stopped working quite uh, a long time before I gave it up um, because I'd started drinking so young. Um, you know, it actually didn't give me a lot of the pleasant side of you know of drink for many years. But but I did it all the time. But I thought that I was just doing it to be sociable. You know, but I I didn't see that same powerlessness with it in the way that I could see it with cocaine. Um, 
in answer to your question more specifically, I had my first real consequence um, in 1997 where I lost a job because of my partying. And that was the first thing that happened to me where I couldn't deny that my use had affected my ability to perform at work. Um, I got another job very quickly afterwards at MTV, <laughs> which was not a good place at that point to get a job as somebody who was trying to stay away from cocaine. Um, but um, yeah, it, so I lost that moment of awareness that I had in 1997 and it took me from 97 to 2001 before I finally realized that I was that out of control um, person that I you know, had always looked down on for many years. Uh, for me, the, the, the thing that happened in 2001 was my father died. And when my father's cancer came back and he died quite quickly, um, I tried to control those feelings of grief and loss with all the things which I'd used for many years and none of them worked anymore. It was, the grief was too big and nothing I could do would push it away. Uh, and I relapsed the night of his funeral. I'd had about, I was picking up 30 day key rings and 60 day key rings in the recovery fellowships. Uh, and that, that the night of his funeral, I picked up vodka thinking I'm just gonna have a couple of shots of vodka. And, you know, by the by the end of the night, I was on the phone to the cocaine dealer, et cetera, et cetera. And then that kind of triggered my rock bottom, which was, it was a relatively short rock bottom. And thank goodness, because I would have died if I'd have stayed out there for much longer. And what was the first step that you took proactively to get out of that place and start healing? Um, somebody who I used to party with, uh, a lovely guy called Mark, um, he came to my house. I was at that stage where I couldn't leave my house unless I was going to school. And I was just drinking from first thing in the morning. And he came to see me and he looked completely different to the previous time I'd seen him. And it turns out he was six months sober at that point. And he carried the message to me that recovery is possible and that, you know, I didn't have to carry on living like that, that there is a, is a way out um, and suggested that I go to rehab. Uh, and thank goodness that I was in the situation that I could go to rehab. I went there thinking I was going for four weeks uh, and then I was going to go back to television and go back to the sick relationship that I was in. Um, and I ended up being in rehab for nearly nine months, well, over nine months, actually. And uh, having to, I had to leave London. I had to leave my girlfriend. I had to leave my career. Um, I, um, my counsellor, when I left treatment, said, you need to do something completely normal and down to earth, not go back to television. It's too risky. So I was a postwoman for a year, uh, getting up at four in the morning and delivering mail on a bicycle. Uh, for a year, which was the toughest thing I've ever done work-wise. And I earned per week what I earned per day as a television director. So that was a very humbling experience going from being a chauffeur-driven television director that everybody thought was a genius, you know, because as you get crazier and crazier in your addiction, lots of people think, see that as signs of, you know, brilliance and kind of the big ego as a sign that this is a person who obviously knows what they're doing. Wrong, I was just mm. an out of, out of control cocaine addict. Um, but anyway, yeah, I was a postwoman for a year. And during that year, I started doing a foundation in person-centered counseling. And then I got a phone call from the rehab that I'd been in saying, we hear you're training to become a counselor. Would you like to come and work for us at weekends? And I worked for them at weekends, helping the counselors and the nurses. And they paid for me to do my addiction counseling diploma. And I turned out to be good at it. Wow. What was rehab like for you? I'm, that's a huge question. I imagine, you know, you have to, your body has to go through a detoxification process at first. Mm. What was the most challenging part? I went into rehab thinking it was going to be like a very nice spa. <laughs> That's how it is on TV. And it, and, it, and, it, and it cost so much money that, you know, I had, a, yeah. I, 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 I had, I think my expectation it was going to be like a very nice spa was probably a, a good one. But I ended up having to share a room with two other women and not having very, you know, not having a massage every day and all of the things I thought I was going to have. Instead, it was a lot of group therapy and one-to-one -one therapy. And um, I mean, there were aspects of being in rehab that were incredibly challenging, obviously, as the drink and the drugs come out of your system and you start doing the the, the work, looking at what's happened to you and your addiction and, and the denial starts to crumble and you start to realize just exactly what you've done to yourself and other people. That's a terrifying and horrifying experience. And having to feel it and, having to and feel not it and go not somewhere to try to escape. Yeah, Jeez. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I also realized that for many years, my heart had been 
dying, that I'd been disconnected from myself and that I didn't everything, you know, a lot of the things in my life were fake and superficial. You know, I had the big house, I had the fast cars and all of that stuff, which I thought was going to make me happy. And I got to see just how none of that stuff is actually important. And I also got to see out of all of those glamorous people I used to be hanging out with who actually stayed in my life and actually genuinely cared about me. And it was a very small number of people from from all the people I used to hang with. So it, it was it, it was a great experience spiritually um, to kind of come back to self and to start again. I, I did used to think this is very strange. that I've gone from having this big life, being a television director, et cetera, to being a postwoman. What on earth? You know, I started to develop a spiritual life and kind of find a God of my own understanding and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, which I was very, um, I was very down on the idea that I would have to have any kind of a higher power or God in my life. But that kind of came through um, through the, the the process that I was going through and meditating and prayer and everything started to work. Um, and you know, my life today is everything it says in the Big Book of AA in terms of the promises has come true. You know, I'm now living in Los Angeles. I have a green card. I'm doing stand up comedy. I'm I've got just got an agent for my acting. You know, I very much I've always believed in be the change at the moment. There's not a single famous out intersex actor or comedian anywhere in the world, as in, you know, a properly A-list kind of person. I don't think I probably have enough talent to be that person, but I'm certainly going to do my little bit in terms of raising awareness. Um, and I've got a very good agent, Amy Luca, at uh, the Luca Talent Agency, who's representing me. And I'm just showing up and being who I am and saying to directors and saying to uh, other writers, you know, these stories need to be told. You need to have representation. This is very much part of the diversity um, kind of landscape that needs to be recognized. And also, if we look at the, the people who are doing it, Taylor in Billions is the most interesting character, I think, in Billions and gave season two the edge that it that it had. So I would say, you know, actually intersex people and trans people and the stories we have, non-binary people, we can actually really add to creative projects. So Absolutely. No question. No question. I could see you A-listing it. Absolutely. That's amazing. So beautiful. And I love that you're performing and you're in TV in a totally different way. I mean, you're in entertainment in a completely different way. It's like a full circle experience, only you're you're now also performing as you. Yes. Tell us about Angels Are Intersex, your play that I'm dying to see. Oh, thank you, August. That's nice. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a play called Angels Are Intersex, which we had in the Son of Semele Festival in L.A. Um, this summer. And um, I'm uh, writing a longer version of the play, uh, which is going to premiere at Solo Fest in Los Angeles on February the 15th. Um, And then I really want to take the play around America initially. I really want to do the college circuit. Um, it's, It's a funny, amusing, funny and amusing are the same word sorry it's a funny and uh and informative and educational and heartbreaking look at uh at intersex and it's it's also um uh i i think that it will connect with most people in terms of their own experience of what it is to be a human being and and uh, I speak to representatives from um, Judaism, the Muslim faith, uh, Native Americans, uh, Christianity, uh, and people who who have, you know kind of have, have um, different kinds of spiritualities to look at what it is to be a human being and um, and to understand what it is to be a human being. So I, I hope that everybody will connect with the play on some level. Is it based on your? life story is it pure fiction no it's completely based on, on on my life story yeah the play starts um it's kind of the story that i didn't want to tell uh in the sense that when i started the the writing process i was called by a female name and uh i was using the she pronoun and um I, it's the story i resisted speaking about because it was so painful and i knew it was going to be painful um but i've been working with an incredible director called jessica lynn johnson and um through her guidance and uh, through just kind of being willing to show up on the page every day, I wrote this play and um, and got to go and speak to all of these different people. Um, the, the play actually started, though, with a really strange experience, which was that I was walking my beagle, Scotty, um, just off Melrose Avenue, and we found what I thought was a dead, dead swan on the floor. 
and as an English person, that was really shocking because only the Queen is allowed to kill a swan. So I'm thinking, oh my goodness, who's killed a swan in Los Angeles? I didn't even know you had swans in Los Angeles. But then I got closer to it and I realized it wasn't a swan. It was a pair of angel wings, the most beautiful angel wings you've ever seen. And they didn't have any urine on them. They were perfect, immaculate. Uh, I tried them on Scotty and they were too big and he tried to eat them. So then I tried them on myself, even though it was kind of a bit embarrassing to be on the street uh, trying on wings. I'm English, I'm uptight. And um, <laughs> uh, and then I bumped into this lovely gay man who lives around the corner who was walking his dog. It was about 11 at night. And uh, he took a couple of pictures of me walking down the alleyway near my house. And that started the story of angels are intersex um, because angels don't have gender. They are intersex. Um, and, uh, you know, I realized that I had to learn to accept being intersex and look for the gifts in being intersex to kind of gain my wings if I was to survive this experience. Because even through being in recovery for a long time, I've still had very dark periods. I've still had very suicidal periods. Um, I have some health things happening at the moment. I'm sorry that I've been a bit all over the place in terms of forgetting things and everything. Um, I've got some stuff going on with my health, which is affecting my um, my thinking as well as my body at the moment. Um, and uh, I have chills. That story about your story is gorgeous. I have, I have them again in my face too. Can you see them? I just think it's so beautiful. And the photo is amazing of you with the angel wings and your your dog Scotty looking up do you want to briefly speak to the health issues since you mentioned them earlier yeah I mean the reality is that it's not a good idea to put a child on hormone replacement therapy at 12 years old they don't know what the long-term implications are and um, you know I've got friends who are younger than me who've got osteoporosis Uh, I'm being tested at the moment for a lot of different things I've got Uh, a problem going on with my legs Uh, it could be something relatively simple that we can sort out uh, but I'm in a lot of fear about it at the moment as you can tell by the fact I'm getting emotional about it Um, uh, you know I'm scared of doctors I'm really still scared of doctors because of what I went through it took me nine months of being in pain every day to get to go and see a doctor the other day to get the blood tests I need because I'm still, even though I know intellectually that I need to do it, uh, emotionally, I want to run rather than be in any kind of a medical facility. Um, Fight, because, flight, freeze. For, yeah, because of the abuse that I experienced. Um, who knows? I've, I, I mean, one of the things it could be is fibromyalgia, and that would be okay if it's that because that's pretty easy to manage relatively and I can just rest a lot and I'm I'm about to do some kundalini yoga training and I you know I'm vegan I went vegan this year and uh, I exercise and I look after myself to the best of my ability the reality is that you know we're, none of us get out of this alive um, you know if I end up in a wheelchair or if I end up you know having something that's that's not a good thing to have then I will just write that into the story um, but I really want to take Angels Are Intersex on tour next year I hope somebody listening will reach out I know that it would affect so many people in such a positive way you're helping so many people to feel less alone and the fact that you will share so vulnerably is so courageous and I am so grateful for what you do and for your voice. I think it's absolutely invaluable. So everyone out there, I want you to follow Seven everywhere. I'm going to share links to all of your wonderfulness, whichever you'd like me to share in the in the follow-up vlog as well. I wonder if you could share one piece of advice that was given to you along the way that really made an impact as far as moving forward, healing, accepting yourself that perhaps might find somebody else out there at the right time today? Sure. I mean, I think um, the most important thing that happened to me in my rehab journey was my counsellor, Richard, said to me, you have to tell people about this. Uh, You have to find the courage to start letting people know who you really are because if you carry on living the lies that you're living, you're not going to survive. Your addiction will take you down again. Uh, It's really true when you have addiction that secrets keep you sick. And the reality is that um, nobody has rejected me in the way that I rejected me. Um, I have met nothing but a loving response from everybody that I've told about 
my body. Uh, you know, I, I've got an incredible partner, Jessica, who really accepts me for me. I found true love and, um, and if you are who you are and you let your light shine, other people respond to that. Um, so that's what I would say. Let your light shine. Don't be cowed by the shame of this experience. Uh, whatever your experience is, be yourself and be truthful and other people will respond to that. And if people want to learn more, reach out to you, connect with you, what is the best place? Um, you can, I'm, I'm big into Instagram, uh, angels are intersex on Instagram. Um, you can reach out to my, um, page on Facebook, which is seven Graham solutions, seven, like the number G R A H A M solutions on Facebook, um, or on Twitter, uh, seven Graham six, nine, cause I was born in 1969. It's perfect. Thank you so much, seven for all that you do and for sharing today. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you will subscribe on iTunes if you haven't and consider leaving us a simple review while you're there. You can also now follow us on Spotify and find extras on my website, augustmclaughlin.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.